Hello and welcome to the first episode of A Winning Mindset, Lessons from the Paralympics, a new weekly podcast brought to you by the International Paralympic Committee and its long-standing partner, Allianz. I'm Andy Stevenson, broadcaster and TV producer, and over the next few months, I'll be speaking to several of the most successful Paralympians in the world who will share their remarkable stories of resilience, positivity and ability. I'm hoping that you'll be able to take some of the things they say and apply them to your own life. That's the plan anyway. My first guest is also the fastest, double Paralympic 100 metres champion and all-round nice guy Johnny Peacock. He talks to me about growing up with one leg, the importance of family, some dancing and, of course, his two gold medals. And away they go and Peacock off brilliantly and Singleton away brilliantly and Wallace is going on with Peacock as well, but Peacock streaking away. It's going to be gold for Peacock again. He's defending his title. 10-8-1 for Johnny Peacock. He's got the gold for Great Britain. He's got what he's come for. So Johnny, it's it's strange, isn't it? We're, we're speaking at a time when the Tokyo Paralympics would have been taking place, but the postponement of the Tokyo Games actually came at a reasonable time for you, didn't it? Because you'd had surgery on your knee late last year. What was the injury and, and how did that surgery go? Yeah, I was probably, yeah, like you say, one of the few people almost praying for a postponement. I had a bit of an unlucky end to the year in 2019, so... I think about six weeks out from the World Championships, it's the final race of the season for me. It's in Newcastle, Great City Games. I'm feeling really good and just doing a little pre-meet warm-up the day before the, the race and basically just landed funny on my leg and it kind of twisted my knee slightly. And I've done it a few times before and normally it's just a very small minor MCL strain, which is what we thought it was at the time. So it, it, it did swell up quite a lot that night, but it, I did manage to just about race on it. It was, uh, wasn't too fun and it definitely wasn't my best performance. And if anything, probably uh, in hindsight, wasn't the best thing for it. But turns out that it, it wasn't an MCL strain, that I'd actually probably knocked out a bit, a bit of cartilage and that the swelling wasn't actually swelling. It was blood. This took time to, uh, to actually investigate too. And it wasn't probably for about two months that we actually finally figured it out. And like you say, yeah, in December, had to go under the knife to get that repaired and, yeah, it was going to be a it was going to be a tight year, shall we say? <laughs> you must have been panicking at that time because obviously we were all expecting the games to be on now, so you must have been worried, surely. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, I guess, as an athlete, and you know, it's all about positive attitude, I guess. <laughs> so I don't know if that's just what the subconscious does to almost kid myself that it's all going to be fine. I was actually relatively chilled about it because, for me since I've moved back to my coach, Dan Paff, you know, he's the guy that, that guided me through the 2012 Paralympics and obviously moved back to him just in the lead up to 2016 and again, had some great seasons. The confidence is there with the program. You know, I it's one of those things that I almost felt like as long as I had six months of a really solid lead in, then I felt like I could kind of get somewhere that was okay because I know that I've, I've managed to push my ceiling on as well now. So getting back to those kind of times wouldn't be as hard as say it would have been three years ago. But that, yeah, that being said, it was going to be quite tight. I don't know what would have happened, I guess. We'll never know now, will we? <laughs> Johnny, I want to take you back to your, your childhood. You got meningitis when you were five years old, rushed into hospital. You were actually put in a coma, weren't you? There was a real chance you might not survive. Yeah. It was a strange time, I think, for my family, you know, and obviously it's one of those things, being five years old, 
I'll always look back with little memory of it. So it's one of those situations that I always feel like was probably harder for my mom and my dad and and all the people having to watch and understand. It's really weird. So <laughs> I was actually speaking to my mom about this recently, and, it, and I know so many people are going to just be so oh, standard side, but I have two dogs, and uh, recently one of my dogs had to go in for an emergency surgery and I've not had them neutered because I can't bear the thought of them having to go under the knife. Like it, <laughs> it panics me. Mm. This day when I had to take her in for emergency surgery, just the fear that I had and the feeling was unreal. And it was at that point where I really just was like, geez, like I am so in pieces now about my dog who's probably going to be fine. I cannot even imagine what it must feel like for a parent to go through something like that, for, a, for like that to be your child. I, can't, I, I must have only felt 1% of what my mum felt and what my dad felt. You know, it's, it's that uncontrolled, you, you know, having to watch somebody, I guess, you love go through something that you just don't know if they're going to be okay. And I think that was, yeah, that's what, that's what the doctors, you know, that's what they told my parents. You know, like you say, as soon as they put me into the coma is that, it's on him now. The chances of you taking him home are slim. And if you do, we don't know in what state he'll be. You know, obviously meningitis, uh, meningococcal septicemia, it's something that, you know, can attack the brain too. So there's there's large potential for lots more damage to be to be made, I guess. You came out of the coma, obviously, and recovered, but your right leg had to be amputated below the knee. And I appreciate what you're saying about memory. You're only five years old. But do you do you have any memories at all of, say, before that moment when you had two legs? Do you remember waking up in the hospital and and part of your right leg wasn't there anymore? Is there is there anything that sticks with you about that? I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's just because I was five or whether it's because just the mind decides it does not want to remember that. But yeah, my memories are very, very, very slim of that kind of time I think I might have a couple kind of almost picture moments in your head where you kind of visualize maybe being in a bed and kind of the environment around you but they're so vague I actually probably have more memories of kind of because I had to have some revisions um so obviously anyone who gets amputated when they're young knows that your bone will continue to grow so if they don't basically have to go back in and chop that that end bit of bone off then it's just going to go obviously straight through straight through your skin because your skin can't stretch and so obviously as I was growing I had to go for quite a few of these and I think I went for one probably when I was about seven or eight so not too long after the amputation and I do remember them trying to put me to sleep for that one I obviously just had this huge fear of operations and hospitals and fear just going to sleep so I think that when they were putting me to sleep there was about five or six people pinning me down just fighting as all instincts trying to get everyone off me. I think just a seven-year-old boy just going crazy. I can't imagine. I'm sure they probably get it all the time, but yeah. I don't know if it was just obviously the memory that the last time that I that, that happened to me, obviously I woke up quite different, so probably wasn't really wanting to do that again. You're exceptionally close to your mum, Linda, I know, and I get the impression that you get your fighting spirit almost directly from her. <laughs> Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, I think it's fair to say mum's a fighter. And I've got a, a really dark but amusing story that I read about you. I'm sure it's true that your sister Becky says she remembers lifting up the sheets of your hospital bed to see your leg before they amputated it. So it was a bit black and blue, you know, rash because of the meningitis, except for 
the gold glittery toenails that her and your other sister Hannah had painted <laughs> on them. Is that true? I've never heard that before. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm going to be speaking to her about that later now. Yeah. <laughs> it's, does it sound true? Does it? What, what oh, kind yeah. of relationship did you have with your sisters as well growing up? Oh yeah, really good. Yeah, we were very close, really close family. Becca's uh, three years older than me. Hannah is is two years older than me. So for both of them, obviously seven and eight at the time of me going through all this and obviously parents just very concerned about this. The nurses were really good with them. You know, they kind of, I think, play around with them, like show them a few bits and bobs and just obviously try and distract them and get them thinking because Becca, Becca's such a caring person. She just almost wanted to be the nurse as well, probably. I would imagine that painting the toenails (laughs) was one of the (laughs) lovely distractions to try and yeah I don't know maybe maybe if it painted it gold it would stay I well I'll go talk to her about this actually yeah and so you know five six years old you get your first artificial leg and do you start running around on that leg immediately are you playing sports I mean how did you feel about playing sport as a child as soon as I was walking I was running so it was as soon as I kind of got that first step done then yeah it was straight to the next one it was no stopping me now you know, I remember <laughs> my mum always used to talk about how she could never take me shopping or, or anything because I'd just be running off, running everywhere. And she'd always be trying to chase me. And I think it was one of my games to be like, right, I can outrun you now. So you're not going <laughs> to catch me. I mean, we know each other reasonably well, Johnny. And I know that you know I have an artificial leg as well. And I, I know from my own childhood, say at school, I was wanting to play football with the other kids in in the playground and actually I didn't really want to be part of any disability sports clubs you know I wanted to just play with my mates in the playground and I did um did yeah. you have similar feelings you know was disability sport as we might call it something that you were aware of or wary of perhaps uh, absolutely absolutely I remember the first time when I was trying to research uh, disability sport Yeah, like you, I was just, you know, in an able-bodied secondary school, 1,800 other kids with me. So it was just almost get on with life as normal, yeah, and play football with everybody else. That was all I was doing at lunchtime. Uh, I always remember going back into my maths class on a hot summer's day. There was a fan at the classroom and I just used to be stuck to this fan because I was a sweaty mess, (laughs) Uh, just running around all lunch. But yeah, it is, I think, like you say, the first time that I tried to research into disability sport, all I could find was the local disabled football team. And I was basically told that you're going to have to take your leg off to play. Or, you know, the other option was a learning difficulties football team. And I was just like, well, you know, I don't really fit into either of those. You join the normal football team, I guess, at that point, and you just you just try to live your life as normal. But I guess it's one of those things, I'm sure it's similar for you, you just, you don't want to do <laughs> the different things either, like it doesn't look as fun, does it? You know, <laughs> you just want to get involved like everyone else, camouflage in. And so what was the shift then? What was the moment from sort of feeling like that to suddenly getting to a point where you're like, oh, crikey, I'm looking at the Paralympics all of a sudden, or I'm, or I'm you know, now a, a runner, but in a disabled sort of sense? I always like, obviously loved sport and I was okay at it. So it kind of, made me think one day how good am I and I remember I went to the prosthetic center obviously where I get my legs made and there was a little poster on the wall that said you know do you love sport are you aged between 14 and I think it was 25 if so speaks your prosthetist and so I did and she gave me this leaflet of a talent day down in Mile End in London 
where basically it was run by a Paralympics GB and you got to go down and, and try out a bunch of sports. So uh, I remember I, I got the day off school, which was a massive bonus at the time. <laughs> and I got to try out, yeah, a bunch of sports. A 60 meter sprint as part of the athletics team was one of them. I didn't like my first go. So I did it, I think, three times until the coach said to me, you're not going any faster now. <laughs> <laughs> so um it was all from there I guess I got I got contacted and set up with a coach from then and I never really knew I guess this is where I'd end up but it was a lot of fun when did you first run with a blade a proper blade all this talent ID things happened in early 2009 the first two years I was just running on my standard day leg yeah um, and the times were okay I think I got it down to it was 12.5 and I remember um I went to ask uh, these people, I guess I would call them leg people at the time because I had no <laughs> clue. They were just the people standing there with all these blades outside. And I walked up to them, I was like, oh, like, can I try one? And, you know, oh, I feel like I need one of these. And I remember at the time, one of the guys was like, you don't, you don't need one yet. Maybe when you're a bit quicker. But um, my coach at the time, Hayley Ginn, she was, she didn't say no. And she basically pursued further and, and ended up getting a contact. And yeah, they agreed to basically let me try one out. And that was in mid-2010. And I still remember, yeah, the first time it was a very, very strange feeling. Because, yeah, suddenly you're used to this thing that is basically a shock absorber. Its whole job is to just suck all the energy that you put into it out, you know, and give you nothing back to suddenly something that can actually give you something back. And it can actually allow you to build and flow. It was really, really cool. It took a long time. Though. I think it took about six to eight months until I was actually starting to get anywhere, I guess, normal on it. It's amazing to think you were watching the, the Beijing Paralympics in 2008 on the television. And then obviously, we all know that by the time 2012 came round, you you were winning gold. It, it's, for it to all happen that quickly is is quite remarkable. You know, you'd never ran competitively before Beijing in, in you know, in a, in a proper sense. And, and then to win gold less than four years later. Yeah. Yes. It's, uh, I think if you could go back and, and talk to me when I was probably 2010, when I just, just started kind of getting in first international. I remember Paralympic World Cup and the winning time was like 11 seconds and I'd run 12.2. It was a PB for me at the time. I was in, still in my day leg on the start line. <laughs> I just felt so out of place almost, but it was so cool. It was so great to be there, obviously. But yeah, it was one of those things like, wow, this is, it's a long way to the front here. And I remember I wrote the times down on my mirror. Top 10 in the world, I think, at the time was 11.9, I think it was. And that was always the hope, I guess. It was, ah, oh, if I could get sub 12, then I'd be amazed. But it didn't happen like that. I just, I just kept running PBs. I remember my first coach, literally, it was like 13.2 was my first race. And then it was 12.8, 12.5, 12.2. And then I got a blade. I trained on it for, for six months and it was 11.8. And then it went down to 11.4. And then I remember 11.4 is when I went to Dan Path in 2012. And it went from 11.4 to 10.8. And I remember actually my first coach, Haley sat me down when I was running PBs pretty much every race. And I got a bit unhappy because I'd only run a PB of like a tenth. It wasn't a very big PB, but I was unhappy at that. <laughs> and my coach sat me down and she was like, look, you need to realize that you're going to plateau very soon. Like you need to, like, you're not going to keep PB in. 
you know, she was almost preparing me to make sure that like, it was more the mental thing, preparing to look, look, don't get so, don't beat yourself up so much. But I don't think even she realized at the time, yeah, how untrue I guess that statement was <laughs> that we've got a few more years in the in the tank. I can imagine there's lots of people listening to this as they're running, perhaps, or in the gym or something. And I'm sure your story there of your improvement has just made them just try and run that little bit quicker or uh, push that little bit uh, stronger in the gym as they listen. London 2012, I had to remind myself that you were only 19 at that Paralympics. How did you deal with the scale of that event? Or was it actually that you just had to kind of shut yourself off to it all? Do you know what? It was genuinely lack of understanding, lack of knowledge, complete naivety is, I think, what saved me. The progression was just so fast. I didn't have time to actually get stressed. I didn't have time to ever realize where it was. You know, I was always dreaming of being where I ended up going. You know, it was literally a situation of these were dreams that I had. It was a dream to to make the Paralympics. And suddenly I'm running times that I know I'll get selected. And then suddenly it's right. It's a dream to get a medal. And then suddenly I've run at the time the world record and I've got potential to win the gold medal. It was one of those moments that I didn't actually really think about that. I was so, and I still am, I'm so technically focused and, and that's, you know, I'm so obsessed with the technical things and training and, and understanding it and improving and that I'm not thinking about, I guess, the grand scheme of things. And I remember, I still remember to this point, like the night before the final, I guess I was kind of like going through, right, I know what I can say if I lose, it's cool. Nobody will, will blame me too much. I'll just sit there and say, okay, guys, I'm I'm 19, you know, it's my first Paralympic. <laughs> I'm just, the pressure got to me. It was a bit much, you know, nobody's going to blame me for that. And I think going into the race with that, knowledge you know knowing that really I, I guess I had my lose <laughs> interview ready I, I was ready you know there was no pressure on me I stood on that start line just just happy and confident and just just wanting to do the job but there is a moment in the race it's, it's, it always happens I don't know why it always happens at the championships there's always these moments in the race where I am so technical but suddenly it happens over like a split second I lose that focus and my brain suddenly realizes where I am and I'm in the front of everybody in a Paralympic 100 meter final. And this happens at about 60, 70 meters. And normally I need a complete change of underwear. And that definitely (laughs) happened in 2012 because the neck, and you can see it in the neck, the neck just slowly starts becoming so, so vascular. And when I cross that line, you do, you think it's going to (laughs) burst. It's just the tension the tension, the shoulders rise, it all it all goes wrong. I, I, I was actually in the crowd that night for your final. I was working on those Paralympics with BBC, but I had the night off because me and my family had had tickets for that night. And there are two things that stand out to me from from my memories of that night, which I'd be interested to know if if you had any perception of at the time or whether it was all just a blur to you. One was the putting your finger to your lips and shushing the crowd because the crowd started chanting peacock, peacock, peacock. And of course you need complete silence at the start. So there was that, and that is an iconic image from that games. And then the roar as you cross the line, I mean, it's still goosebumps as I describe it now. So were either of those moments, the kind of shushing moment at the start, the crossing the line and you you, you let out, I mean, I think it's fair to be honest and say you, you swear incredibly loudly as you cross the line. 
Was that all just happening kind of spontaneously? Uh, are those moments that you remember from the race or is it just that 60 metre, oh my goodness, I, I need to relax? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird. I, I love how you summarised it there. I had absolutely no clue what I was doing yet in terms of thinking about it or anything or realising even afterwards what I'd done or what had actually happened. That stadium that night was electric. I remember warming up. And I, we had a, a little monitor that would show you inside the, obviously, what the live stream of what's going on, the warm-up track. And Hannah Cockcroft obviously won the first medal, the first gold that night. And you could hear the crowd. You could hear the crowd from the warm-up stands and you see what's going on. And it was just incredible. I remember I was doing my final block starts at the time. Just that energy. And it's just, you hear it. And it was just, it was, it was incredible. And then I'm standing there five minutes before the, the, the 100 metre final I'm standing underneath the stadium I've walked us out it's like gladiators I guess entering the stadium <laughs> at that point and you're underneath and it's just I remember Dave Weir's going round I can't remember if it was the 800 or the 15 or something but I just remember seeing Marcel Hugh on the inside coming round that last bend and Dave Weir coming round his outside and the crowd going nuts like, I've never heard a noise like that and I was, this was five minutes before I had to go out there. And I, I was just, I remember I was like, did he win? Because I hadn't seen, I couldn't see if he'd won. And they were just like, someone <laughs> was like, dude, can you hear the crowd? Like, yes, he won. Uh, you just wanted a piece of it. You know, you wanted to go out there. It's like, right, my time now. Time to do my thing and time to enjoy it. And let's go put a show on for this crowd because what a night it's turning out to be. And you were wrapped up with it. But when I was stood on that start line, I guess, and... I remember, I think it was the third time of asking that the shush happened. And it was, I think, Alan Oliveira who hadn't, wasn't using blocks at the time because he'd had an injury and he was kind of quite wobbly. So the starter, I think, made us kind of recall. It was The tension was building. The crowd was getting quite amped. And obviously, London 2012 Paralympics was incredible. We had so many people in the stadiums. But some, I think some of these people just weren't used to athletics events and obviously knowing that it needs to be pitch silent for the, for the start. And you just hear them, them chanting as they're trying to get into the blocks. And all I am thinking is, I didn't want someone to finish the race and say, oh, the crowd put me off. That's why Johnny won. I didn't want any excuses. You know, I felt so good. I felt so prepared. I was like, this is my time now. And I didn't want, I didn't want anybody to sit there and have an excuse. So I remember I was like, I need to get this crowd dead silent. So we've <laughs> all got a nice even playing field here and nobody can sit there and say they got distracted. <laughs> Very British sense of fair play from you there, Johnny. Yeah. Do you watch the race back? When was the last time you watched the race from 2012? Do you know what? Um, when I moved back to my coach in 2016, Dan, that's, that's what he got me to watch back quite a few times. More from technical, yeah, for technical standpoints. Yeah, so I guess I've probably watched it quite a few times in the last couple of years, but I'm always just slow-moing it and <laughs> looking at for. <laughs> I'm going to test out another family story here because you didn't believe my earlier one. Um, <laughs> I've read that your mum saw a psychic before the games and she told you that the psychic predicted a silver medal. Now, is that one true? Yes. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that one is 100% true. But she told you the psychic predicted a silver to actually motivate you. That's the key thing here, isn't it? Because actually the psychic told her you were going to win gold, isn't it? That's, <laughs> that's, that's it. what happened, yeah. Exactly. Mums always know. They know how to manipulate their children, don't they? Mum had gone to see a psychic a few times, yeah. Her father, her grandfather, had passed away just before I was born. But... 
yeah, there was this one time that she came back and this was a year before London. And this was when I was running like 11, five. And in my head, I was like, no way. There's not like, if I could meddle, I will be ecstatic. And my mum had come back and she said, oh, she saw a son, a boy and like a stadium and like almost like the Olympics or something. She didn't say anything. She tried to go in as a skeptic almost and not give anything away. And she said, oh, she's seeing this color, this color around as well. It's silver. And and obviously I'm sitting there as a kid and I'm like, what? No, no way. What? She saw a silver man. And I just obviously completely bought into it at this point. No way. Oh my God. Like she's seeing the future. Gonna get a silver medal. And I was obviously, yeah, at the time, elated with that. And like that, if that happens, like that would be incredible. And I guess like part of me does believe that I guess in some of those things to a point somewhere deep down. But then the year obviously progressed and you know, I went to America and I broke the world record and you know, I was the fastest in the world by a good tenth or so. And I was like, hang on a minute, like what's gonna go wrong? Why why is this silver? <laughs> it's a classic bit of sports psychology from your mum. I'm very very impressed by that. Now, if we fast forward four years, I was also there in the stadium for your gold in Rio. Now, that was a roller coaster of a games, wasn't it? And in the new Netflix film about the Paralympics, Rising Phoenix, you say you were genuinely angry when it looked like those Rio games were coming off the rails before they'd even begun. It's an obvious question, I suppose, but why were you so angry? London 2012 was obviously the complete changing point. It it raised the bar for the Paralympics and it showed you how amazing this sport can be and how big an event it can be. But when I saw the state of how close that Paralympic Games was to actually not happening and I realised, I just don't understand, even now talking, I don't understand how it got to that point. Like for me, after 2012, that's the Paralympics now. That's it. They're, they're there. There is absolutely, like in my head, there's not been a talk that there's not going to be Paralympics. Like that is, it's a staple event. It's part of the Olympics. It's part of it. That is, they're a package deal. And then when you see what these guys went through to try and make it happen, oh my word. Yeah, the film, the film made me realize it deeper. Like I wanted to go up to, to the guys from the IPC, give him a big hug. But like, I can't believe what you guys have pulled off. Like, I cannot believe where it was. Like, thank you. It's just, but then it's sad as well. And you get angry that why has it gotten to that point? Like, how is it? Is it? Is it because it was given to a place that it really shouldn't have been given to when they never had the money for either of them in the first place? As you say, yeah, the film shows very well, doesn't it? How how the IPC and, and the local organising committee, etc., the Paralympics, you know, everybody sort of pulled together and they, they managed to get the show on the road, thank goodness. Just uh, one one other question on the Rising Phoenix film. How significant is it that a film, you know, a movie, a proper film on Netflix is being made about the Paralympics? Ah, oh, it's, it's incredible. I think it shows for me, at least, like that hunger for the Paralympics. You know, I think, I don't know if what Ludwig Gutmann back in the day, envisaged I, can't, I bet he only dreamed of it being where it would be today even from 2012 or 2011 perspective to see where we are now and I hope that's part of that legacy of London 2012 is that you know it's now become the norm and now people want to know about it and actually it's really cool when you learn about it and actually there's some really cool stories and I mean the Rise of Phoenix film though wow like I've never I, that, that blew me away I've got to talk about Jean-Baptiste I've known that guy since I started the sport. I've shared a room with that guy. I've spoken to him about what he's been through. Seeing it in that film, like, 
That's in tears. It's, 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 it's heartbreaking. And it was at that moment the film taught me, because I've been somebody who's been all about the sport for the Paralympics, all about the sport since I've joined. I don't really want to talk about the story. I know it's important, but I almost don't want to talk about it because I think the sport should be what we talk about. But when you see that, you go, wow, that's that's why it's important. That's why it's so important. And it's showing so many people, you know, these dark days, you can you can turn them around. And he's one of those people. I agree with you. I think uh, I've seen the film and I agree it's... Jean-Baptiste Allais, who French sprinter, but he was born in Burundi, and I, I won't sort of ruin the story for people watching the film, but his little section of the film is, is uh, yeah, just it really gets you and it stays with you for a, for a long time. When you look at that Rio 100 metres final, by the way, if you take out all the emotion of London 2012, was Rio a better race on a personal level? Oh, yeah. In terms of the sport, the Paralympic sport is, is still young. Like, that's what everyone needs to remember as well. It's, it's very young. Most events really should be progressing almost every year, you know, every four years especially. And yeah, the T44, it's progressed hugely. Yeah. You know, in 2008, people were able to win the Paralympics with 11.16. Obviously, in 2012, it was 10.9. And in 2016, it was, I think, 70-something. But it was it was quicker anyway. But And everyone, and we had multiple people running sub-11, and it's in my head, you know, it's going to be the same in Tokyo. You know, it's going to be faster. This this event is just going to keep progressing. And hopefully we'll be even more proud of that Tokyo final. Now, Johnny, I want to ask you about competing against non-disabled people. So firstly, the primetime British TV show, Strictly Come Dancing, which as most people will know is a celebrity dancing competition shown around the world under under various titles. But here in Britain, you were the first disabled person to take part in that show. What made you go for that challenge specifically? <laughs> oh, uh, a lot of fear, a lot of fear going into that. Uh, all the memories come flooding back. I remember my agent said, oh, this, is, this could potentially happen. And I was like, wow, that's not me. Yeah, I can't dance. I'm awful. Yeah, I, I literally am. I'm the, the last person on the dance floor. I have to be. I have to be at the point where I know that I'm not going to remember it the next day to dance. So for me to kind of accept to do that show, it was all about I feel like I had a very specific way that I wanted to do it. You know, I wanted to go out there and be the first disabled person and have people not talk about it. You know, I wanted to be the person who didn't every week remind people that I'm disabled and tell them that this is why they've got to vote for me, you know, and that I wanted people to realize that disabled people can be a rubbish dancer that needs to get kicked off the show now. And we're not <laughs> going to keep him in because we pity him. We're going to kick him out because actually he's really not very good anymore and he doesn't belong to be here. You know, I wanted to go on that show and, and one week show kids how cool it was to have a blade and how you can get it and, and hopefully have so many disabled people who, who perhaps were, fit, were scared to maybe go and, and get involved in dance and that kind of thing and have that confidence to go and do it, you know, to show that blades can be cool. You know, do things like the jive with, with, with the blade out, you know, it was so important to me and so cool. But then the next week I wanted to come out in a pair of trousers and hide it and have people try and question which leg it is. And and when I'm throwing OT in the air, I go, oh, wow, okay, like he's doing that better than a guy about, you know, who, who has two legs and, and four limbs. It's it's those things that, that were very important to me. I wanted to change people's perceptions on how they viewed people with disabilities. 
I wanted to go on there and have people just see me as me. It's a it's a fantastic attitude, and I think it 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 gets results. I think I think people take more notice of of somebody like you just actually doing something rather than making a, a big deal of the disability factor. That's the Paralympics, though, isn't it? I guess it's just showing the world, you know, that we're all humans and we're just unlucky humans that have had something done to us, and that actually it doesn't stop doesn't stop a heck of a lot. Are other sports kind of on your radar in the sense of you know one day whenever in the future you might you know you might not be a sprinter anymore age might catch up with you dare I say but would you go into another sport either in the Paralympics or just actually outside of the Paralympic world Ah, uh, you know what for sure I think I can't wait to retire just so I can start playing football again to be honest I'm terrible at it don't get me wrong like you're not going to see me anywhere other than Sunday league I think in terms of the Paralympic sense, for sure, I don't think I'll be that guy trying to kind of, yeah, search around to, to stay around. But yeah, I love sport. I'll try it all. I can imagine the centre-back in the what the sort of Leicestershire Sunday League sort of turning up for his match <laughs> on a Sunday morning and going, we've got the Paralympic 100 metres champion up against us today. <laughs> They'll just take you out. It's Sunday League. They don't, they don't care about that, do they? Got to look out for my ankles. The good thing is I've only got one ankle. <laughs> well, exactly. This is it. We'll wrap up by talking about Tokyo next year. Is your schedule just completely up in the air in terms of your build-up to, to Tokyo Paralympics next year now? Uh, no, it's pretty standard, to be honest with you. I think, obviously, because of the situation that it's all been pushed over just exactly a year, the whole plan just kind of shifts a year. I've basically just lengthened this season out for me. I've lengthened that process of me trying to come back to the fast sprinting. So we've just introduced it much slower. But we're still going to kind of take a break at a normal time this season but yeah, it will be very similar. Start training again, probably around October, trying to lift heavy, run a lot with the hope to, to be slightly faster in, uh, in September next year. The question I hear more than any other, by the way, is why doesn't Johnny Peacock run the 200 metres? <laughs> so what, what, what's the answer to that? I might. I might. Do you know what? Genuinely, it's been... Um, oh, So in 2012, it was, it was an ankle injury. I couldn't run around the bend too often. I think I thought about it in 2017, but I don't know why. I think for whatever reason, we just didn't end up running it. And then obviously, yeah, 2018 was off. So it's there. It's coming. We might see. We'll see how it goes. I just, I'm just lazy, aren't I, really? I just, uh, <laughs> it's just too far. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm built for 11 seconds of energy. It's just, that's it. <laughs> Are you going to Tokyo? I know it's a results business, I suppose. So you'll, you'll probably want to yeah. wait and see how you get on in Tokyo. But are you going to Tokyo thinking that you're also going to go or definitely going to go to Paris as well? Or is it wait and see? No, for sure. Like for me, like I love this sport. It's, it's really weird. I've actually, since this whole crazy year, I've actually almost really found my love for it. For me, it's going to be an injury that will kind of force me out. And I'm, I'm sure touch wood, hopefully it will be a while. But with this sport, it's very hard to stay running these kind of speeds, doing what you're doing to the body. So it'll be one of those things. But I am not going to be the guy that, like you know if I obviously if somebody beats me in in Tokyo no I'm not just gonna hang my hang my spikes up and blade and be like that's it I'll definitely be be lifting heavier weights trying to trying to beat them again in 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 Paris (laughs) I I always think the thing with the Olympics and the Paralympics is you because they they pick the 
the venue or the host city so far in advance. I always think you must sit there and go, well, like, yeah, I quite fancy Paris. Actually. Yeah. Oh, quite. LA 28 sounds fantastic. You know, I want to be there. And then by, <laughs> by the time we get to the mid 2020s, they will have picked the host for 2032. And you'll be thinking, oh, I might fancy that one as well. And, I mean, at some point you've just probably got to go, mm, okay, no, I have got to stop now. Uh, yeah, you're, you are, you're not wrong. Yeah, you are not wrong. I mean, for me, I, I, I love Paris. Like, I love, I love France. Paris is literally one of my favorite cities. So I do really look forward to to those to those Paralympics too. Uh, but yeah, you're you're not wrong. LA is a very nice place, and that would be a really cool place to go. Especially you know, there's a lot of Americans in that in that race too. So that's going to be quite it'll be quite a cool one, quite a cool atmosphere. <laughs> but we we got to see. I'll, I'll be an old dog by then, so it'll be one of those things like you'll be like sick of sick of seeing me. I'll just be <laughs> hanging on to the end of these people in the races. I'm still here, guys, finishing seventh. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Who knows what life will bring. Well, listen, we've covered a lot of ground there, and uh, I really appreciate your time and your honesty, and um, it's been great great speaking to you. So thank you very much, Johnny, for that. that always great. Always great to speak to you, Andy. So a great way to round off this edition of A Winning Mindset Lessons from the Paralympics with Johnny Peacock promising us he's going to be competing for a good while yet. If you enjoyed this first episode, then please subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends and come back next week when I'll be speaking to Tatiana McFadden. Her story is utterly remarkable, beginning in a Russian orphanage, being adopted and taken to the USA and going on to win 17 Paralympic medals and counting. Don't miss that one. Have a good week.